welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. This is a limited podcast series focused on the entrepreneurial journey of crypto native hedge fund founders. By crypto native, I mean hedge funds created with the sole intent of dealing in digital assets. According to PwC, there are currently only around 300 crypto specific hedge funds globally versus 30,000 live funds in other asset classes. The total liquid AUM of crypto native hedge funds is about $4 billion. The median AUM is just shy of $25 million. This tells you how nascent this space still is. I would like this podcast series to be an opportunity for crypto hedge fund founders to share their own story and journey prior to starting their own fund. Tell us how their business got started and how initial success was achieved. I think our audience will also be keen to hear how the current crypto winter is affecting the sector of the blockchain economy and what the future holds in their opinion. Our guest today is Peter Cambolan, Chief Executive Officer of Systematic Alpha Management. Systematic Alpha Management is a hedge fund focused on the development and management of fully systematic trading strategies using highly liquid digital currencies and their derivatives. Under Peter's leadership, Systematic Alpha Management received six performance awards starting in 2009 through 2019 from leading publications such as HFM Week, CTA Intelligence, and Pinnacle. While growing the firm's assets under management to a peak of $721 million in March 2011, Peter graduated from Baruch College in New York, magna cum laude. He cut his teeth in the managed future space before launching his firm. This podcast was recorded prior to the revelations surrounding the financial health of FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange, and its affiliate Alameda Research. I confirmed with Peter that Systematic Alpha Management was not holding assets on FTX at the time it unraveled. The FTX debacle highlights the risks of custodying digital assets with vastly unregulated participants. The hope is that this will strengthen the industry moving forward, ranging from enhanced customer protections to systemic risk mitigation and sound regulation. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I was born in uh, Moscow, Russia, and I came to New York uh, with my parents. I went to a uh, very normal public uh, high school in New York City called Martin Luther King Jr. High School. Graduated from that school uh, in two years and went to Baruch College, ultimately got my finance degree there. And I was looking for any type of job on Wall Street. And uh, initially, uh, I, I worked for a small broker dealer got my Series 7, uh, put it on my resume, and we were trading stocks for individual clients uh, at that time. And then uh, later, we established an asset management company. And so we were trading, uh, doing brokerage business and started doing managed accounts on the asset management side, uh, side, side by side. That started in 2000, 2001. Uh, and then in 2004, we established our first uh, hedge fund and we initially consolidated uh, all the individual managed accounts into that hedge fund. Um, and the, the hedge fund started with maybe 4 million under management in 2004. By 2005, it was already at 20 million. And then we were more or less doubling our assets under management. And we had a very unique and unusual at that time CTA strategy, which was market neutral. We were trading long, short global equity indices uh, with beta neutral exposure. We were hedging it with currencies, futures, and uh, so forth. For CTAs, it was quite an unusual strategy. 
Your background really is you start in brokerage. Brokerage, then CTA business. Yes. Right. You you don't go to like let's say bulge bracket south side typical, but going directly into brokerage and starting in the equities asset class, right? As I understand it, and and so you cut your teeth there in an environment where obviously the world, the microstructure, liquidity patterns are very different from what they are now. So can you talk to us about how it was to to trade equities back in those days? I mean. You also presumably navigated sort of structural sell-off that occurred in, in 2001, 2002. So I'm just curious also, it's like not to jump to the end of this podcast, but certainly want to talk about parallels that you can draw there. Well, yeah, now people complain that NASDAQ is down 25%. Back in 2001, it had a drawdown of 80%, 8-0, from 5,000 to 1,000. So it was a very, very interesting times. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, we started doing brokerage initially, but then we realized that the volatility in the marketplace was so significant that we wanted to put together something, as I described before, market neutral, beta neutral, uh, systematic. And that's how we came up with our proprietary spreads, which we traded. We exploited geographical arbitrage. It was a, quite an interesting idea where uh, let's say European equity indices, they open for trading at two o'clock in the morning, US time. Asian markets open for trading at eight to 9 p.m. our local time. And so liquidity at that time around the clock and, and futures like S&P 500, there, it was not evenly distributed. Obviously when cash markets open, that's when liquidity is the highest in US. But at two o'clock in the morning, Obviously, it's not the case. And vice versa, at 4 p.m. our time, it was, uh, let's say, 10 p.m. in Paris. And how many uh, people would watch CAC 40 at 10 p.m. in Paris, especially when you don't have fully automated execution at that time? There was no robots, no computers. So, uh, so for us, it was a very opportune time. And we exploited that. We call it a risky arbitrage. It's not a pure arbitrage. It's a kind of like risky arbitrage for a very long time. We had a continuous audited track record for 15 years. Wow. Is there anything that you honed in and that you learned then that is still part of your mindset and your approach when you look at, you know, new markets such as crypto? Is there, it, yeah. did you glean anything in terms of just an overall way of approaching specific trading thesis? Or is it completely different? Well, jumping forward, what we're doing in crypto right now is pure arbitrage. We're not placing any directional bets. Uh, and so yeah. in a way, that's what my background has been. Uh, although we were not trading pure ARB in, in equity indices because you know there's no two S&Ps 500, but there are 10 or 20 Bitcoins, more or less, trading on different exchanges, the same contract or same instrument, same, same digital coin, trades on various exchanges. And that's quite a unique, unusual situation for the uh, marketplace because in the normal uh, equities world or commodities world, you know, that particular market uh, trades only on one exchange. So it's very difficult to arbitrage. Uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and many other coins trade simultaneously at different exchanges. So yeah, there's some similarities, I would say, going back to, to, you know, to my experience. Yeah. Were there any setbacks along the way, things that happened later? The reason I'm asking this is I think it's very rare, you know, even Ray Dalio speaks about, you know, some of his notable failures and misreading 
or mistiming the market. And I think it's very formative, right? As a hedge fund manager to go through these, not that I wish it upon anyone, but it basically teaches you a lot about yourself and the market. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's funny you, you, you ask about this because th this is what happened to us. Um, in 2008, when we had a you know, financial crisis, again, going back to that period, I was very scared for the world, for the financial markets, because that was a real, real disaster, real, real danger. And, uh, volatility was going through the roof markets. Uh, but what's interesting, our particular strategy that we traded had its best year in 2000. Why? Because volatility was very high, uh, but it was high across all global markets. And so for us, it was a great opportunity to generate returns. And to, in 2008, we returned 46% net of fees to, in, in a double average share class of money. Wow. That will help you with a track record. Absolutely. And then in 2011, that's when we hit a brick. And uh, we actually had a uh, six months continuous losses in 2011 from March through August. And again, if you recall what was happening, Federal Reserve for the first time was the first one to kind of like get aggressive and start influencing the markets while uh, central banks in Europe were very slow to and what was happening on the macro level. Uh, U.S. equity markets were supported by the Fed while European markets continued to collapse down, so-called European debt crisis term. Yep, I recall very well because I was trading the London equity derivatives desk at Deutsche Bank at the time. And, you know, we forget easily that in 2011, my colleagues and I were looking to move our euro assets out of banks, uh, our personal assets. You know, it came very close until Mario Draghi came out and says, whatever it takes. The mistake that we made was that we were, by 2011, Prior to that, we had such a perfect track record and we thought that what could happen to our strategy uh, if we survived 2008, which was totally out of sample period environment, what else could kind of like throw us down? Well, what else could kill us? And so the mistake was that we continued trading same risk uh, in 2011. We had, no, in, in prior to 11, we had periods when we had one or two consecutive negative months that happened even one time we had like three consecutive months so in 2011 when it started to when we started hitting a drawdown we thought well that's just another drawdown markets are volatile we'll recover and then we hit you know drawdown month number four number five and number six and that was tough. uh and so that's when we had a lot of redemptions but they wanted to reduce exposure usually everyone wants out at the same time and presumably your strategy was very liquid based on what you said unfortunately some investors redeemed at the you know worst possible time yeah because it, it was the only liquid thing they could redeem and they probably had other assets right that's true by the way going back to 2008 when we were performing 46 percent a year we still had outflows of course i could see why because again being that you're managed futures especially if you're doing well the lp sees it he's like oh well this account is up and it's highly liquid i need cash for margin calls or i have other things pull it out so in in a way your success in 08 caused you obviously you weren't complacent because you were thinking about what can go wrong but it's hard to tell because you did well you just didn't anticipate this kind of outcome, right? You said in 2011. I mean, in my experience, I have never seen anything more scary than 
what was happening in 2008-2009. Yeah, the thinking was if we could survive, very nicely survive that environment. 2011, yes, was, was kind of like scary, but not as much. Uh, but it was a killer for us. But what, what's unfortunate for those clients who redeemed uh, in 2012, the following year, we, we fully recovered from a drawdown. And ultimately, we got our biggest prize, the Pinnacle Award, which was very prestigious at that time. And we got recognized. Up until there was one last wave of uncertainty with the Spanish yield widening till May of that year. And then the rest of the year was a great year for risk on in that premiums compressed, correlations came back to more acceptable levels uh, to your point earlier, where not only uh, did you have a much higher beta in uh, Europe, but also correlations sort of broke down. So I remember 2012 was kind of a relief on some level. So this is very helpful. It tells a lot about the fact that you are now managing crypto strategy, but what led to it is significant experience across many, many different market regimes, all the way back to a time where literally the microstructure, the workflows were very, very different from what they are now in equities. How did you get started with this specific crypto effort? What was the genesis of that? Well, we got initially excited back in late 2017 about the crypto when we heard that uh, CME and NFA and CFTC are about to approve the first futures contract on Bitcoin on the CME exchange. We thought that, okay, this is going, you know, totally legitimate now. And uh, if institutional investors will ever participate in the crypto markets, the only uh, route that they would go to would be CME futures because CME futures have absolutely no operational risks. Your counterparty is CME exchange. You don't touch the crypto itself. You, 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 there's no wallets of any kind. So. We decided at that time to put together a, uh, a fund called Systematic Alpha Cryptocurrency Fund, which was trading Bitcoin futures only on the CME exchange. There's pluses and negatives about it. The pluses I described, no operational exposure, uh, you know, very easy to, from on the operational side to approve us. The negative part of it is that there's only one contract. You know, you can't do arbitrage, you can't hedge. Uh, that's a negative part of it. And so and not to mention liquidity, right? I mean, I'm assuming it's still liquidity is still pretty poor. I would say comparative to initially it was small, but it was CME was not doing a nice job and they were growing the liquidity nicely, uh, over time. And, uh, what our thinking was that the Bitcoin market has very strong trend following properties, which means that. If it goes up, it goes up for some time. And if it goes down, it goes down for some time. And so we applied certain trend following models uh, with different look back windows. So we were trading like a shorter window and a medium one and longer window. So we had multiple sub models, let's call it, trading Bitcoin futures. Great. So when you are getting started, you're, you're talking about trend following as someone who had been in markets for so long and overseen trading efforts that presumably, you know, looked at these types of signals. What do you think was inherent at the time? And then my next question is going to be like, are these still persistent? Like, why do you think that these types of signals, which now perform much more erratically in, in equities, for example, 
why do you think they worked better in crypto at the time? And did they work well on the way up and down or just on the way up or just on the way down? Good question. See, at that time, uh, crypto markets were not as developed as they are today. And so the amount of institutional participation, if you think it's small today, it was like non-existent at that. And so mostly retail people were trading those markets. And because these retail clients or traders, they're not sophisticated, they generate these trends. They kind of like watch each other, what, what everyone is doing, and let's, they, they follow up, follow each other, you know, and that, that creates a trend. So to answer your question, some markets are more efficient than others. Like, for example, FX markets are very, very efficient, very hard to trade trend following models in those markets. But on the opposite side, we thought that Bitcoin in particular was inefficient, especially back four years ago. And uh, applying trend following models to it might make you know, more sense. Uh, and is that still the case? I mean, on the whole, I mean, again, uh, to be clear to the listeners and, and to yourself, as I stated, uh, the goal of this is not to pry for proprietary uh, trading ideas. But more generically, I think we're referring to the maturity of the market, the liquidity, because liquidity plays a role in, in creating those strong autocorrelations. When the market starts moving in one direction, people lean into the market for liquidity reasons. But there's, as you said, there's reflexive signaling. If you start seeing a trend, it's likely that other smart money is doing the same thing. So it's sort of the tail that wags the dog. Is it still the case? Nowadays, markets are a lot more efficient and we basically moved away from trading trend following models. As I said, right now, we fully 100% concentrate on pure arbitrage trading. Um, and plus, again, if we go back and look at my experience and the history, we always were focusing on beta neutral kind of like market neutral strategies with low drawdowns and trading bitcoin in a directional way obviously you have drawdowns i mean you can't avoid it and so in a way it was a bit away from what we are we historically were doing you know all, you know with all these markets that we traded now we are back to our roots let's call it and we virtually have no drawdowns i mean uh, to be honest with you on a daily level we rarely have a down day because again, we treat pure arbitrage. As one would expect from a pure arbitrage strategy, when they exist, they exhibit a very high risk adjusted return. Now, of course, we can get later on as to what is the risk that you're getting compensated for, but that's a separate topic. But truly, I think you've managed to achieve quite a stable performance on that front. So back to the operational aspects. You have a managed futures and you're a commodity pool advisor. So you have the infrastructure to, you know, move from equity futures or add Bitcoin futures to your offering, right? So at the time, do you commit your own firm capital? Do you go to your existing investors? And presumably you already have an operational structure, which is going to be different from people who started from scratch. In your case, you had the backbone. So do you go to your investors and ask them for money uh, to test it out? Or how did you go about creating those vehicles? In late 2017, when we started putting together the fund, there was a huge hype and everyone was talking about and and institutional uh, investors got in interested as well. Not only institutional, we dealt with family offices, high net worth individuals, etc. And so, yeah, we, we, we told everyone that we are thinking about putting this fund together. This is what we plan to do. Uh, you know, operationally, you have absolutely no exposure. 
and uh, let's test that out. And th that's what happened. It's incredible how much return chasing exists. You would think that people want a position to buy low and get positioned for the next upside, but the psychology both in retail and I would say, you know, because I've, I've dealt with institutional allocators as well, because of the incentives, right? Because of the way incentives are set, it's very hard to commit political capital at an institution where you have to work within a system and a process to get capital deployed. If it's your own individual capital or family office, I think you have better chance of winning a mandate. But going through the traditional route, it's usually very much tied to the market psychology at the time. So it's good that you were able to capitalize on, on that. At that time, obviously things were you know, on the rise, but nowadays we're facing another crypto winter. And uh, I'll give an example. A month ago, I had a very, very nice discussion with the family office and the guy who spoke to me he was very impressed with the background and the performance and the, the style of trading and the approach and the infrastructure. I mean, he was, wow, you know. And then a week later when I followed up with him and he said, well, I, we spoke internally and we decided to stay out of crypto. You know? And so it had nothing to do with our product, our offering. It's just, you know, uh, it's out of favor and we decided to stay away from it. There's nothing, you know, I can do about it. So, and, and this is a case where structurally, and if people are in charge of allocating and they're in charge of a portfolio, there's all these other, and this is again for, for listeners who may or may not be familiar with this process. As an allocator, you have a portfolio that's invested in a number of asset classes using a number of different vehicles within those. And your portfolio is going to change in composition and weights and allocation weights, especially when you go through a year like this year, where in traditional asset classes, you've had, you've witnessed some of the worst drawdowns that you've seen uh, literally in decades. And what that causes is a, literally an inability for those allocators to deploy capital, even towards opportunities that might be attractive, right? Again, it's, it's a combination of, is it feasible? And then do they have the internal political capital to, to do that, right? The, the role is not to uh, generate income for the company. The role is to protect the company against bad things yeah. happening. You know, <laughs> There's no upside for them. Yeah. And uh, so what we potentially are facing now with the crypto fund is somewhat similar, where there is a very bad publicity lately uh, regarding the crypto, the, you know, how secure, unsecure these exchanges are. You know, there were some blowout, blowups recently major ones uh, with some coins, Luna and some others. So, you know, again, I go back many, many years and we've seen many waves in, in crypto in particular as well. We, we buried Bitcoin at least three or four times already and it, it came back every time stronger and reached a new high. I mean, right now, again, we're not directional. One of the last points I, I like to talk about in terms of foundation before we move on to, to actual trading and current market and, and what you see for the future, team. So obviously you've had partners, you've built staffs over time. Talk to me a little bit about the construct of your current business. You know, how has it's changed over the years? Has it changed? Are you still sort of a core group of partners who've worked really well over the years? What is the fabric of your business? Yeah. So on the systematic alpha side, I consolidated the ownership under my hands at the moment. So I'm hundred percent owner. We have two lines of businesses at the moment. One is the crypto arbitrage business. And another one is 
uh, intraday trading in futures. Uh, it's a CTA type of business. And so for both of these um, programs, I have different, let's call them R&D portfolio managers who are developing these two different uh, products. Signals generated using artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithm. Uh, for the crypto, we have a fund vehicle. We do not do managed accounts because the setup of trading is very complex. Uh, for the CTA business, it's the opposite. Um, we actually do open managed accounts. It's much cheaper to set it up. You know, you don't have all this overhead with the fund. So, and presumably the, the relationship with those portfolio managers is something that you've established over the years, or was it a recent selection? I met both of them in the last three years. So they were not part of the team back in, you know, back in the day. And, and I'm assuming again, you build on your own experience in doing this for so many years. What are the main things you look for when, when you hire these portfolio managers? What is your approach to building human capital? Well, they need to be uh, dedicated to what they do. They need to love what they do. And both of them are very, very you know, kind of talented and passionate uh, at what they're doing, uh, both on the crypto side and on the machine learning, artificial intelligence side. And so that's, to me, extremely important. Both of them realize that, uh, you know, we need to... Uh, you know, generate certain returns and uh, meet certain expectations first before, you know, we, we can share the uh, potential benefits down the road. So, so passion and, and love for the, what they do, and they need to be extremely talented and, and professional. That's great. No, I, and, um, you know, again, I, I think, I think there's a lot of glamour, uh, around, you know, wall street and hedge funds and asset management in general, but I think it's important to recognize that, you know, a lot of capital is being managed by emerging or, or smaller groups and entities, so, you know, similarly to when you're building a tech startup, to your point, the hunger, the dedication, wanting to be part of a story and contributing a deep commitment to the craft itself, like loving what you do on a daily basis is what carries you through good and bad times. It's oftentimes lost in, uh, in translation. Otherwise you tend to get more of a mercenary approach, which doesn't ensure longevity and sustainability of I think the human capital, at least that's been my experience that's true the limiting factor for emerging managers in general is going to be down to resources if you are in a field where alpha is highly dependent on heavy r d if you are in an environment where looking at the crypto world right now and the state of crypto markets you are not yet in an environment where latency and co-location matters as much as it does in equities it will eventually get there a lot of trading is being affected through apis rest apis which are notoriously slow i think in as much as you can build a track record in a team without being beheld to immense investments in R&D capabilities within it, I think you're in a good spot. When it becomes an arms race is when it's hard. That's true. And so it's also making it easier, obviously, to resorb any arbitrage opportunity. So, so just to summarize your investment philosophy at this stage, right? And as I've read it, as you've explained it to me, is pure arbitrage, which means you are getting compensated for resorbing uh, and collapsing mispricing for same assets traded in different locations, right? Yeah. Um, and so you're earning cost on your capital for essentially rectifying what are anomalies. So 
at a high level, if you were explained very shortly, very briefly to listeners, why do you think these opportunities of mispricings exist even today? Well, uh, obviously, everyone knows that crypto markets are very volatile. And uh, when, the, when these bursts of volatility come uh, and Bitcoin simultaneously is trade on all these different exchanges, there could be uh, price differences on one exchange versus another because, let's say, limit order book is exhausted on one exchange and the other one is not exhausted. And so when that happens, our computers would pick it up and we would provide liquidity, basically. So we're getting paid in a way to, for providing liquidity to that exchange, which needs it. And we are hedging ourselves on the other exchange, which doesn't need it. And so, in fact, when we provide liquidity uh, on the fees level, we're actually getting paid fees from the exchange. And so, so roughly speaking, 50% of our volume is we provide liquidity and then the other 50% we hedge. So we kind of go market order and we, it's a market order. We will take liquidity. Essentially fulfilling what is the typical in economics 101, this, this function of a speculator in the market where you're providing liquidity, you're bringing capital to where it's lacking. And so prices distort because in order to incentivize liquidity to come in, the price needs to reach a certain point. So presumably it's going to be wider or tighter and it incentivizes participants who have capital. So the value proposition to your investors is if you deploy capital with your firm, you are going to earn a return on that capital because you know where to selectively provide liquidity in a way that doesn't expose you to directional risk. Is that accurate? Correct. At, at all times, we have no directional exposure. So if we are going long on one market exchange, we are immediately within milliseconds uh, hedging ourselves on the other exchange and we're holding the same digital coin. How do you backtest that? Can you backtest that? Well, uh, the models have been trading live since uh, February 2020. And we've had so many, tr I mean, every day we turn over the, the, the portfolio, the account, you know, one or two times a day. So there's a lot of trading going on. So why do a backtest if you can, you have real data and we have real daily PNL that we can share with potential clients. Uh, my question is uh, on some level more related to how do you assess the overall potential and capacity and the ability of the market to absorb the capital? In other words, if someone gave you a hundred times the capital you have today, would you be able to earn the same returns? No, absolutely. There's a limited capacity to the strategy. I mean, at, at the moment, we uh, estimate it to be at around $100 million. Uh, I, I, we cannot do this with a billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, but again, we are going through a crypto winter, and we, when liquidity comes back to these markets, maybe our capacity can grow, and we can always uh, go to other coins. At the moment, we focus only on two. Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, at some point, Ethereum caught up with Bitcoin in terms of the you know, volumes tra traded. So it's a very nice uh, coin. Uh, but we're not trading coin number three, number four, number five yet. But if, if we need to down the road, we can always go there as well. So you actually started trading your strategy, your crypto strategy, at a time that coincided with a huge run up and then a huge collapse in price levels. Now you're non-directional, you're providing liquidity in a pure arbitrage way. How did things play out during that crypto downdraft 
like when things fell and how is it playing out now? We've seen very large names retreating from the markets. You know, they might have retreated from other parts of the market, surely. But do you feel like the opportunity set has evolved? And if so, in what ways has it evolved? And how are you navigating this period? Well, we have three years to look at 2020, 21 and 22. Uh, 2020, uh, at the end of the year, generated the returns, which are our historical average for all these three years. You know, last year uh, was actually a, a, a better year compared to 20 and compared to, to this year. Uh, even though people say, well, arbitrage opportunities are going down, you know, yes, they're going down, but again, the transaction costs have, have come down quite a lot. Uh, this year, especially during the summer months, we've seen slowdown in terms of opportunities. But in September, for example, uh, we had one of the best months uh, you know, uh, in, in a long time. So uh, with crypto, it's very difficult to know exactly you know, what your performance will be on any given month and, and what you know, the volatility will be. So my adv advice to investors is to kind of like stay the course, uh, especially with a market neutral like strategy like ours, um, and uh, you know just you know we 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 feel that there's better times coming. On some level, right? I mean, you'd want to diversify and harvest new sources of risk premium beyond what you're doing. But your value proposition to investors right now is you actually make more money as things become more volatile. Yeah. Under the assumption that you know you can execute both sides of the trade, right. and that there is actually liquidity of execution there. Is there a risk that in some markets things get so volatile that yes, on the one hand you can provide liquidity but you can't execute the other price-taking leg. No, um, the way we are set up, we are breaking our orders in very tiny pieces. And so before we are fully done on this, let's call it spread, uh, we're not executing the second one. So uh, if for whatever reason we are losing connection with exchange or we're not getting a fill or the slippage, for example, is higher than we ex would expect, uh, the system just you know shuts down trading and doesn't place us new trades until we figure out what's happening. So our directional exposure is literally a few milliseconds on a very tiny position, and uh, we're always hedged. You ended one of your sentences, you know, a few seconds ago, saying there are better times coming. Of course, we need to take a positive view, and and we could opine for another hour as to the merits of the asset class. I strongly believe that the existential aspect of the asset class has been debunked. I think it's it's there to stay. I think that we're seeing new products and services being developed and absorbing the consequences of what we just went through in the last 18 months, which is this big run up and excessive speculative bubble that we saw. And I think there's a there's a healthy regrouping that's taking place, not unlike what happened when you got started after 0102, where in the internet, first generation, people building businesses at the time were drawing lessons from the past and they weren't necessarily reproducing, but they what they did have was they had an infrastructure in place. If you recall, pre-99-2000, 
broadband was, was really an issue, even in, in the US. After 102, NASDAQ was obviously down, venture capital investment was down, but what you had was infrastructure in place because the telcos had stepped in and you know the plans that emanated in the 90s were eventually adopted. So I, I see a lot of parallels here where you have a phenomenal infrastructure that keeps evolving, but it's there. And I think use cases, application services are going to develop in ways that on some level is hard to anticipate. So that's my view. Uh, so I'm, I'm a believer and I believe in the vibrancy of, of this ecosystem or sets of ecosystems. What is your view on the future for the asset class? Well, I think during the heydays, uh, a lot of these internet, I'm sorry, uh, crypto projects were quite well funded. You know, a lot of people uh, generated new coins or sold new, new, new coins and uh, they have good funding and they yeah, continue to develop a lot of interesting applications and this what we see now is that uh, crypto has very high correlation with uh, equities. I've never seen uh, the correlation to be as high as what we see today. And clearly equities this year have been under a lot of pressure because of, again, of, of the Fed. And uh, maybe it will last for another six months or so, six or nine months until Fed is done. And I think once uh, things will start be more clear on the equity side for better or for worse you know uh, crypto will kind of like follow but they will follow with a much higher like beta if let's say S&P will be up I don't know 20% crypto could be up 80% you know 60% do you see this as as a as a levered play from a beta perspective as far as the asset itself right yeah on the risk on the overall risk complex especially equities at the moment yeah a lot of liquidations have taken place we reached another point of equilibrium, which I think is interesting. As we were talking, the Fed came out and raised by 75 bips, and we're obviously missing the, the press conference right now. But, you know, I think we're, we're going to start entering a period where we need to see how those measures are playing out in different parts of the financial markets. It's obviously been a, a complete repricing of longer duration assets like technology companies. And you're right in that at some point, this is going to stabilize as expectations are being built into forecasts, getting more comfortable in, in this new world that we're in. So we can start looking forward as opposed to being in a correction mode where, you know, you're trying to run for the exits until you find a new equilibrium point. I would love for the asset class to remain somewhat decorrelated. That would be nice. <laughs> but I think it's hard. It's hard, right? Because it's tied to liquidity, but it's also inherently I wouldn't say replacing, but it's going to play a very active role in our existing lives and our existing economy. So in that sense, I think it makes sense that correlation actually does increase to a certain extent. Well, that notion that crypto would serve as a hedge against inflation definitely did not, did not play out well this year. But also look at, uh, at gold. I've, I've traded gold for a long time and I, I own quite a, a significant piece of my personal assets in gold because I've always been a believer that it's a hedge against debasing of the currency and anticipated inflation from debasing of currencies so well in an environment where rates have, have been hiked at a pace that we've never seen before. 
Because if you remember in 2013, during the Tapler tantrum, gold collapsed and crashed. And that was a big, uh, big headline story for much of the spring of that year. And I think here, if you if you look at the run up in both gold and, and Bitcoin and Ethereum, as the fiscal stimulus was being deployed right after the lockdowns, I think it did play a role in signaling that we were going to see a lot of printing and it did happen. It would indicate that the market feels uncomfortable with how loose financial conditions are and how loose liquidity is. I think what's happened since is now we're in realized, not expected inflation. Like inflation is actually realizing right now. But in this case, I think what the market is telling us is a sobering sentiment of less liquidity on a moving forward basis, but still being constructive. So what does the future hold for your team? And what is the plan for the next 12 months? What is your core focus at the stage? Is it asset raising? Is it coming up with new products and strategies? What is taking up most of your time right now? Yeah, we would like to focus on the two products that we have. We like both of them quite a lot. Uh, they're quite different. Uh, one is very good for CT investors. Another one is good for everyone. Um, because again, crypto arbitrage is very rare when people would open up uh, such a vehicle to outside capital. Absolutely. No, we, we I think we are very happy with the uh, product and R&D. We would like to focus on the business. Excellent. Well, you do have a very encouraging track record. You are offering, as you said, a return profile to investors that is typically kept very closely. And, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier also that your drawdowns were, were very limited by construction. So barring capacity constraints on this, this is a very interesting investment profile for people to get into the asset class without necessarily having to take a long view other than structural liquidity, right? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. Great. Awesome. Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me today. I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot from reading your materials, understanding how you got to where you are today. And I think your your background speaks a lot in terms of breath and having navigated so many cycles. So I, I thank you for taking the time. I wish you the best of luck with the next 12 months. I think you'll, you'll find some investors because I think the return profiles very interesting. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Radio Venture Management, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. This podcast is not an offer to sell or an invitation for an offer to acquire shares or interest in any entity comprising the funds mentioned in the podcast, nor is it an invitation to apply to participate in any entity comprising the funds. This podcast is not an offering or placement of shares or interest in any entity comprising the funds in any jurisdiction and should not be construed as such. No information in this podcast will form the basis of any contract. Any future decision by a recipient or other person to apply to participate in the funds will be based solely on the final offering and constitutional documents of the applicable fund entity once available and not on this podcast. This podcast is intended only for informational purposes and convenient reference and is not intended to be comprehensive. Certain information contained in this podcast may constitute forward-looking statements due to various risks and uncertainties, actual events or results, or the actual performance of the funds, or underlying investments may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in such forward-looking statements. The information in this podcast has not been audited or independently verified. Neither RVM nor any of its officers, employees, members, related parties, and affiliates, as applicable, makes any representation or gives any warranty in each case expressed or implied as to the fairness, accuracy, reasonableness, completeness, or correctness of this podcast or its contents. Accordingly, no reliance whatsoever should be placed on this podcast or its contents.